Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, your word speaks to us wherever we are, whatever condition our hearts are in today, whatever we're facing this coming week or what we've been through this past week or our past from long ago. Lord, we thank you that your word speaks to us on a deep level, addressing the issues of our hearts. We pray that your spirit may take these portions of your word that we're looking into this morning. We pray that you would help us to see how they apply, how to connect them with what we are needing to deal with. And we pray, Father, you give us hope, give us encouragement, and give us power, we pray, for change through your spirit and because of what Jesus has done. We pray in his name. Amen. If uh, you were part of an ancient village, one of the things that you would probably have put on the list of most important things for your village to accomplish would be to build a wall around your village. A wall was meant to be constructed in such a way that it would provide ongoing protection and security for those who lived within the walls. If you know the story of Nehemiah, you know that Nehemiah came and inspected the wall that had been built years ago around the city of Jerusalem. And as he walked around that wall, it had been attacked years earlier by the Babylonian army. It had been left in disarray. There were many parts of the wall that were compromised. There were breaches in the wall. There were parts of uh, the wall that had holes in them. You could just easily walk in. All the gates that had been built and constructed with very thick wood doors were all that had been burned, and now those doors were no longer in place. And everyone and every, anyone could enter and gain access to that city of Jerusalem. And they were all vulnerable. They were easily captured. It's interesting how Proverbs chapter 25 takes the analogy of a walled city that now is in broken disarray, and uses that as a vivid comparison to a person's life who lacks self-control. Listen to what Proverbs 25, 28 says. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Without self-control, all of us are vulnerable. All of us are exposed Without self-control, all of us can easily be taken captive by ungodly desires and passions. So what we've been continuing to look at week after week, and we're continuing this morning, is looking at what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, and he had laid out a vivid contrast between a life lived out of the flesh, out of our own abilities, apart from God, and he used that as a one way of living and contrasted whoever lives like this is not in the kingdom of God, but the evidence of the Spirit of God at work in a person's life who is in the kingdom is the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. So we're looking now at just reminding us of what that looked like. He says in Galatians 5, verse 18, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, 
Just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, such things, there is no law. So we're looking at the last of those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. They're all part of the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning we're looking at the issue of, and the character trait, of self-control. As we look around our society today, I think it's fair to say that we find widespread evidence of people whose lives are like broken down walls. And in terms of they have and lack self-control. We live in an age of immediate gratification. The last few generations have bought into this philosophy and the idea that if it feels good, do it. As a matter of fact, it has resulted in a society where we have impulse control for people, whether they're young, whether they're in their middle age, or whether they're old. For many people, impulse control is a rare commodity. Permissiveness has become the status quo in so many areas of our lives today, particularly in parenting. We see it. Parents are known as modern parents that now it's common for moms and dads to give in to tantrums. And so moms and dads will oftentimes be found negotiating with the three-year-old as if they are on the same level of the three-year-old, as their equals in trying to make decisions in order to try to decide what will go on in the home. In everyday speech, what do we find in regarding permissiveness? Well, we hear people say whatever offensive language they think or happens to come out of their mouth, it all is just spewed out. Among many in the young adult generation, as those who pursue a life of partying, it's not just partying, it's binge drinking to excess, to being out of control, which leads to all sorts of out of control behaviors, which we're hearing now about on the college campuses of all sorts of sexual assaults and different things that I believe are associated with being a a life of excess. And did you know, and I guess you probably know, or you're aware, I hope you are, that there's such a a massive amount of of, uh, availability and people accessing pornography on the internet that 25% of all daily search engine requests are for pornography. People are pursuing it. They are looking for it. They are uh, giving into the desires to find enjoyment and excitement in it. And also I read that 42% of all internet users view porn. Almost half. It's such a widespread struggle and problem. An ever-increasing number of people also struggle with other forms of compulsive desires, which we all can relate to. Gluttony is one, as we're hearing more and more of people who are having facing serious health problems because of, of the amount of food has been consumed over a period of time. There's also people who are struggling with out-of-control spending that is leaving them now enslaved with consumer debt, with high interest rates, and very much enslaved because of out-of-control Decisions they made regarding what they spend and what they spend it on and how much is spent. Now, I could go on and on. You you get the idea. There are many areas in which 
the idea of needing self-control is a little obvious. Now, is there anyone here this morning who would honestly say, I don't struggle with self-control. I don't struggle with self-discipline. That's, that's not a problem for me. I think it's fair to say all of us honestly struggle with it. Maybe you might have prayed this prayer. This is in a little frame that we have uh, sitting around our house that I believe one of our relatives gave us years ago. It says this, Dear God, so far today, I've done all right. I have not gossiped. I have not lost my temper. I have not been grumpy, nasty, or selfish. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And that is when I'm going to need a lot of help. Amen. I think we can relate to that, can't we? We're pretty good self-control when we haven't hardly even started the day. But once we move into the day, it raises the question, how can we gain mastery over our impulses? How can we gain mastery over the desires of our flesh that we all are struggling with? Indeed, where can we turn to find help to rebuild the walls of our hearts and souls and regain some measure of self-control. I'm convinced that all of us, myself included, all of us desperately need a Savior. And if you struggle with self-control, my friend, I hope you'll understand to see this as a connection with what you need. You need a Savior because all of us, all of us fail in this area. And the gospel... It is the gospel and gospel alone is able to help us in what Jerry Bridges describes as giving us an ability to exercise inner strength under the direction of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to do and to think and to say things that are pleasing to God. Apart from that help through the Holy Spirit, my friend, all of us are like broken down walls where we're just vulnerable, easily attacked and have no resistance. And so this morning I want to devote our time that we have to reflecting upon gospel truths that can help us in this area of self-control. I believe if you'll turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, page 1418 in your pew Bible. 1418. Titus chapter 2. My goal this morning is to apply the gospel to our hearts. I'm not going to necessarily give you what some of you, perhaps as parents, are here today and you're saying, oh, I just wish you'd give me seven key principles, seven skills that I can use to improve self-discipline and get my kids to do everything I'm telling them to do. And I'm not going to give you that today. I'm sorry. So if that's what you're looking for, uh, you're going to be disappointed. But what my goal is, is to apply the gospel to our hearts. And the more we can understand the connection between the gospel and our hearts, hopefully the more we're going to see that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the only hope we have for self-mastery. So follow with me now as we look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, The grace of God has appeared. And that's another way of describing Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God incarnate. God dealing with sinners in grace in the person of Jesus Christ. The grace of God, Jesus, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires 
and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, the first thing I want us to look at this morning is to notice self-control, the connection between self-control, the gospel, and a changed heart. Point number one, changed heart. Paul, when he wrote this short letter to Titus, Titus was ministering at that time on the island of Crete. Interesting connection. The letter was sent to a guy who is serving God, serving Christ on an island. Many of us are serving Christ on an island. And I believe the Cretan culture and the culture that we live in shared one thing in common. Not too many people live self-controlled lives. It was evident to Paul, it's evident to many people who lived in that society As you look through chapter 1, actually, verse 12 of Titus, Paul quotes a uh, well-known citizen, a well-known teacher who has characterized most of the people who lived on the island there of Crete in this way. He describes them as liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. I don't think he was exaggerating. I think he was saying there's a lot of wild, out-of-control living that characterizes that culture. And so Paul is speaking in such a way that he's trying to apply the gospel to a a very obvious character deficiency that's evident in the culture. He's saying, okay, for those who are followers of Christ on this island, they are supposed to live, chapter 2, verse 10, in such a way that the gospel is impacting their hearts so that they adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The gospel is to have such an impact on who we are and what we think and how we're behaving in our heart attitude, it becomes obvious that it it makes the gospel all the more attractive because of the way in which we live and the fruit of the gospel being lived out day by day. And so Paul connects the hope of Jesus in the gospel to the hearts of his people so that the outward fruit of self-controlled living will provide numerous opportunities where we can display the glory of God for the watching, unsaved world. I can't help but think that's such a beautiful picture of what a godly mother and father has an opportunity to do for their children to see. If you ever want to pray and say, God, I want to be a person whose life is lived in such a way before my children that I'm adorning the doctrine of God, my Savior, which I know I need a Savior, and I'm living out the gospel in such a way my kids can see there's something going on inside of him. He's not like the average person. He's a humble, or he's a, she is a person whose life has been changed and impacted by the gospel. That's a good thing to be praying for if you're a parent here today. Lord, apply your gospel to my heart so that my kids can see the evidence of that. Well, here's what Paul does. He argues in chapter 2 in this fashion, beginning in 2, 1 through 10. I don't have time to go through the whole thing. I'm just going to summarize what he says there. Paul takes the gospel and he says, listen, if we're believers, we're to live in subjection to Christ, who is our Lord, who is our master, who is our savior, who has rescued us from the hopeless condition we used to live in. And he says, in our daily lives, we're to have our hearts governed by the gospel of realizing that because of what Jesus has done, I am now a new creation. And so he applies it to whether a person is young 
or whether that person is an uh, is a more mature person who's been around for quite a while. He says whether it's in our speech or whether it's in our behavior, whether it's in our, with our spouses, whether it's with our family members. In all of these areas, the gospel is to be uh, lived out and applied to our hearts in such a way. He says even in the workplace. He says the common thing in the workplace is that people who are working for their employers or their masters, they oftentimes would steal from them. They would pilfer. They would take and say, ah, they'll never miss this. Who cares? They're rich. I'm not. I need this. And so they steal things. And so Paul says, listen, the gospel speaks to everything you're doing in such a way that you learn self-control not to do what you've been doing for years, to not follow the pattern that everybody else seems to do. There's There's a need to govern those desires to say, I serve the Lord Christ, not just my human master. And he ties all this together as the reason for doing all these things is because of Jesus Christ himself. And that's where we come into our text here in verse 11. The reason that we live a different way as a Christian is not because we have to. It's because of the tremendous sense of gratitude and amazement of what we've received from God in Jesus Christ. It's grace, grace, and more grace. Look what he says, verse 11. When the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Jesus demonstrated incredible self-governance. And the reason that we are so drawn to Jesus is not because of just his obedient life and self-controlled life, but it's realizing that Jesus himself, as grace incarnate, he lived this godly self-controlled life He he was unmatched by anyone else. No one has ever lived a life like Jesus Christ. He never gave in to a sinful impulse. Can you imagine that? That seems like all we do. But Jesus never did. And if you want to look at the most incredible example of his internal self-governance, self-mastery, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, Jesus, we read in Matthew 4, he went into the wilderness all by himself. Nobody around, no props, no encouragement. He's by himself in the wilderness. He's not just there for a couple days, 40 days, severe physical trial of no food. And he faces Satan, not once, not twice, three times throwing at him the seduction of appealing to the desires of his flesh, appealing to the desires of his eyes, appealing to the the, the pride of life. And what does Jesus do in each attempt? He resists self-indulgence. He speaks the word of God back to Satan and he demonstrates sound judgment coupled with an internal inner strength to resist sin that is so impressive. You just can't help but be at marvel at his ability to do these things. Here are his passions. Here are his, I mean, is he hungry? Satan says, look, turn this little stone into a loaf of bread. You got to be starving. You know, use your power. And he goes, no, I'm not going to do that. Man should not live by bread alone. I'm going, to do, I'm going to honor God with my power the way is appropriate. His passions, his desires were in harmony with the will of God. See, Jesus' subjection to his father led him eventually to lay down his life on the cross as he yields to his father's will, saying, this is really not what I would like to do, but I'm yielding to your plan. He dies on the cross, not as one who indulged in his own sins, but as one who is a substitute for those who yield to our own selfish desires again 
and again and again. It is in the gospel that Jesus bestows the riches of grace upon undeserved, undeserving people like you and me. People who have no self-control, who lack self-control. People who are idolaters, who, who are looking for something and someone other than God to satisfy our deepest yearnings. And we're living for our own pleasures rather than living for God. You see, all of us were made for God. We were wired to worship God. And in the gospel, repentant idolaters who are pursuing other things and other people other than God to worship. We are granted all of these undeserved benefits that Jesus earned for us. He saves us from the penalty of sin. That is, receiving what we justly deserve to be separated from God eternally and punished for our self-centered and selfish ways that we pursue, breaking all sorts of desires to control those selfish desires. We we receive what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Freely, completely, through Christ. He saves us from the power of sin so that we don't have to constantly be giving in to the selfish and sinful desires of our hearts. And He saves us someday from the presence of sin. Indeed, as we think about that, and we think about the idea that in Christ and in the gospel, we gain what? Not merely new techniques on how to live. Hear me on this, please. The gospel is not just about new techniques. The gospel is about a new heart. It's changing us in our nature, inside. We gain a new identity. We gain with that a new perspective. And we gain a sense in which the sinful desires that used to rule our hearts are now dethroned because of the gospel. In view of Jesus' love, and the more we grapple with, and the more we ponder, and the more we take to heart the love of Jesus Christ, in laying down His life, His selfless atoning death on the cross, the appeal and the attraction for sin is not as strong the more we are aware and focus on the love that God has has shown us in the gospel. The evidence of saving faith, my friends, is a conviction of sin. That we feel the weight of our lack of self-control. We become aware of how we have yielded and how we have pursued all these things and how our own hearts have, have, have given in to these sinful desires. We have no excuses for what we've chosen to do. And we feel the weight of that conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit who makes us aware of how much we desperately need forgiveness. And that drives us to to wanting to turn away from that kind of pursuit that we've had for a period of time in our life. And it leads us to what? It leads us to Luke chapter 9 in which we say, I want to pursue a life of repentance where I deny my own self-centered desires. I deny myself. I take up my cross daily and I follow and pursue Jesus Christ as my Lord and Master. Recently I had the extreme privilege, I've read it several times now, of reading online a testimony of a young man who attended Covenant College in Tennessee. He started off by saying that he was raised in a wonderful family. He was homeschooled early on. He went to church all his growing up years. 
He was a person who went to a Christian school in his secondary training in school. He admitted that he was religious, but he also admitted he was not regenerate. And the nature of his heart became more fully revealed during his college years, where he had much more freedom to do what he wanted to do. And he began to say to himself, why do I have to live this life that everybody else wanted me to live? And so he began to pursue pleasure. And his desire for pleasure led him to get drunk at parties on a regular basis. He enjoyed the illicit pleasures of sexual immorality on a regular basis. And he also sought delight frequently by smoking pot and pursuing uh, illegal drug use on a regular basis. Interesting, if you compare Galatians chapter 5, notice the phrases there, drunkenness and carousing, out of control behavior, is the deeds of the flesh. And he admits to it. And at that time in his life, God began to use the principle of sowing and reaping. You sow to your flesh, you're going to reap corruption. Because of his drinking, he had an accident. Because of his drinking, he went to jail for a couple of nights. Because of his drinking, he was uh, losing friends and acting out in violent, angry ways. And He began to realize that his, his life needed to change. And then came in his life the tragic news that his younger brother was killed in a very freak and strange accident. And his life began to spiral downward in grief and sadness and reflection on how empty his life was and what a mess he had made of his life. He became depressed. He became uh, questioning what was the... Life was so futile. It had no meaning and significance any longer. And he contemplated at one point suicide. And right at the moment when he was thinking he was going to just drive, walk himself right out into a, into a busy street, he got a phone call from his father. It's amazing to see the sovereign hand of God and what happened next. And as a result of that encounter, he did not do what he had planned to do. He eventually found his way into uh, his sister, led him to talk to a couple different people. One of them handed him a little booklet, which he read. It was based on biblical truth. As he read that booklet, he began to do a lot of soul searching. And that led him into reading, for some reason, the book of Isaiah. And as he began to read the book of Isaiah, verses off the page of of his Bible just began to nail him between the eyes, right in his heart, realizing this is something I need to deal with. I need to come to grips with the fact that I have offended God and gone my own foolish ways. I can't tell you the full story, but anyway, because of his reading the Scriptures and because he began to sense the Scriptures convicting him of a sin and pointing him to the Savior, finally he did come to Christ. He repented of his sins. He transferred his trust from wanting to be his own God and running his own life the way he wanted to, completely trusting in Christ and him alone, who bore his sins on the cross. And guess what happened? His desires changed. His desires changed. No longer did he enjoy that out-of-control partying. No longer did his former sins satisfy him. He began to do battle against some of the habitual patterns that he had developed over a long period of time. And over time, he developed new habits. 
and had developed new pursuits and developed new friends around him and hung out with Christians and began to pursue hearing the word and began to apply the scriptures to his life and to his heart. And he began to live in light of the fact that he had a new identity in Jesus Christ and a new nature. Praise God. It reminded me of reading a story when I was a child, trying to understand biblical truth, and I remember hearing a story about you can take a pig and play with that pig, you can wash that pig, you can try to domesticate that pig, but if you give a pig an opportunity to go find a mud hole and take a bath in that mud hole, that pig is going to do that because a pig, just as his nature, he enjoys doing that. You can wash it off all you want, he's still a pig inside The point here is what I'm trying to say is if those of us who are struggling with self-control issues, I'm just saying, let's not get the cart before the horse. You have to ask yourself, do I have a new nature? Am I a person that just talks like I am a Christian or am I a person who's changed, has a changed heart? That I have been humbled by the gospel enough to confess my need for Christ and I have surrendered to him and placed my faith in him. My friend, that is key. You will never find the Spirit of God producing any kind of self-control as fruit of the Spirit until you've come to Christ on His terms and confessed Him as Lord and surrendered to Him and trust Him as your Lord and Savior. You can do that today, my friend. Just like the guy I read about online. God will meet you if you're looking for a new heart. God's the one who can give that new heart to you. I want to move forward now to another whole section here under self-control. And that is to think of the self-control of the gospel and new patterns. New patterns. The gospel provides incentives to develop new patterns of thinking. New patterns of responding. Even new desires. For example, I would suggest that Many people, without even thinking about it, unbelievers, they rarely give a thought before they indulge in a sinful activity. It's sort of automatic. We just just do it. But the gospel of grace can, and the gospel of grace does, have a profound impact on how our minds respond in temptation. Here's a good quote for you. Self-control involves thinking before acting. Self-control involves thinking before acting. You see, godly living, Paul would say, is the fruit of the gospel applied to my thought life, which oftentimes dictates what I'm going to end up doing in any particular moment. And you say, what are you talking about? Well, look at verses 12 and 13 of Titus chapter 2. He says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. I wonder how many of us would struggle with our self-control issues pertaining to some behavior and sin or, or conversation we're going to have, whatever. How much of those issues would disappear if Jesus were standing right in front of you. In other words, if Jesus was standing right beside you and you're faced with the temptation to surf the web and, and look for porn or if you're uh, wanting to know if you should 
uh, you know, uh, go ahead and, and uh, take something at work that doesn't belong to you because you figure, well, nobody's going to miss it. How, how likely is that to happen if Jesus is standing right there? So what Paul does is he says, listen, if you realize that we have unending fellowship with Christ and that that fellowship is going to culminate in Christ coming back and actually returning here in his, in, in pre, in his presence with us, would you be pursuing as many false promises and so many sinful desires that are promising you fulfillment if you knew that Christ was right with you and you were enjoying the fellowship and the love you had with him? That's why Paul's connecting Jesus' final return in glory. He says, every, one day, every believer is going to enjoy sinless delight, endless satisfaction in Jesus. And he says, be thinking about that reality. That's where your destiny is. That's where your life is going. And he says, this is how the gospel is to retrain our thinking. He says, since I'm a child of God, I'm to start acting like the person I soon will be. Did you catch that? He says, since I am a child of God now, I am to pursue living like that and pursuing what my life will look like someday in great fullness when I become more and more glorified, when I become glorified and more and more like Christ. By fixing my hope on Christ, I as a true believer, I find motivation to purify my life rather than living out an out-of-control life, indulging my flesh. That's 1 John chapter 3. The more I'm aware of Christ's return, the more it motivates me to say, He's coming. It could be today. Therefore, I'm going to pursue my life to honor Him today because I am so anxious to be with my Savior. I can't believe how graciously He's dealt with me in the gospel. I can't wait to finally be free of all these struggles and to live in a way that honors Him 24-7 in my glorified state. I can't wait for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. You see, this is why believers in chapter 3 of Colossians are urged to set our minds on the things above, not on the things on earth. Why does he say? Look at page 1401, Colossians chapter 3. Paul gives a reason why that in the gospel we find that Jesus, when he comes back and is revealed, how important is Christ? Well, the gospel tells us that Jesus is our life. Apart from Christ, we have no life. Apart from Christ, we have nothing to be motivate us to change. But Christ, He is our life. We live for Him. He's my everything. And that's what the gospel reminds us. He is the treasure that I receive from God. It is Christ to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him. That's what I receive in the gospel. And he says, it's Christ who is our life. When He's revealed, we'll also be revealed with Him. So he says, you need to get your mind up into where you're the reality of what you'll do is you'll enjoy Christ forever. Therefore, enjoy Christ today as you anticipate that day. And the gospel will change the power of sinful desires as our minds are renewed. You say, well, how is my mind going to change? Well, the more I think about the gospel, the more I'm going to become aware that I realize that sins are offensive to God. They are the kind of ways that are really inappropriate responses to someone who show me such grace and such love. And the more I think about that, the more I begin to realize I look at the consequences of sin. I look at how it has a horizontal falling out on many different levels that causes grief and sadness. And then we look and understand how Satan has a strategy to deceive us. And what is his goal? He wants to convince us that believing that sin is not a big deal and believing that God, ah, he's not all that good. 
He's holding some things back from you, from enjoying some things that you know full well. Come on. He's a killjoy. And the gospel tries to retrain our thinking so that we see God and appreciate him in the gospel in a way that says, what he is withholding from me is for my good so that I might enjoy all the more fullness of life as God intends for it to be for me. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll show you another application of how this worked for the gospel. Page 1361, 1 Corinthians 6. I'm convinced that we need to see these words as applying to our day as well. We live in a sexualized culture, do we not? There are so many sexualized messages being uh, bombarding us in every different realm of our day-to-day existence. And in a sexualized culture where anything goes, Paul addressed a people in Corinth who similarly faced those problems. He says, listen here, you've got to flee immorality and you need to do so based on gospel thinking. Gospel thinking. Look at verse 19. Do you not, not feel, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? What's he reminding them of? He's reminding them of redemption. There's a price that has been paid. Christ has bought you out of the slave market. Now you belong to him and as a child of God. He says, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God. That's your motivation in resisting sexual sin. It is to remember who you are and what God has done for you in the gospel. Since our bodies do not belong to us, it's been bought by God at such a great price, then my heart, therefore, is going to motivate, is motivated to resist ungodly bodily urges and desires, not because I have to, but because I'm thankful that I no longer am slaves to sin. I would argue the same argument, and I mean the same argument is made clearly also for another struggle of trying to gain control, and that is with, with overeating and gluttonous desires. Look at Philippians chapter three, verse nineteen. Paul says. The Philippian believers were taught by all these false teachers, eh, live it up. Enjoy all the food you want. Go to the feast and go to the, the buffet and eat till you're stuffed every day because that's what life's all about. Enjoy it. And Paul says, listen here, those false teachers, they have elevated the desire to eat to a worship status. He says, their God is their appetite. Food has become their God. And he argues and says, listen here, don't you know that your citizenship is no longer in this world? You're a member of a kingdom that is yet to come. And therefore he says, listen, food was never meant to be the ultimate status, to attain an ultimate status. Food will never satisfy you what you really yearn and long for. It is not worthy to be worshipped. What does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The gospel helps us get a framework on understanding the things that we feel such a strong desire for, we have to ask ourselves from the framework of who I am and what the gospel says in terms of what God has done in my life, then why am I pursuing this and forgetting what I have in Christ? It's critical in terms of our thinking. There's much more I could say about that. I want to move forward, though, to another angle of things, and that is to think about the gospel response, helping to rebuild the walls of self-control, which we all uh, need so much, and that is to have a surrendered will. Not only a, 
a mind that has been changed in our thinking, but also a surrendered will. In view of Jesus' yielding himself to the Father as our sin sacrifice, we are called, Romans 12:1, to yield ourselves to God. Lay ourselves down on that sacrifice every day. Reminding us that in view, of, in view of the mercies that God has shown to us in the gospel, I offer myself to you, God. I say, here I am. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to you. To live a life that's holy and acceptable to God. And rather than having our sinful desires ruling our hearts and our lives, a Christian is to live in subjection to his ruler and his master and his king, Jesus Christ. Here's a helpful quote. It's not in your notes, but uh, it it has to uh, add to the quote from Augustine. A guy by the name of D.G. Kyle wrote this. He says, The beginning of self-mastery, the beginning of self-mastery is to be mastered by Christ. To yield to His Lordship. You see, Submission to God is our greatest means to freedom. Now, some of you are saying, you lost me on that one. Submission to God equals freedom? See if this illustration would help. You have a train, Long Island Railroad. It moves fairly well if it's on what? Parallel tracks. But just the other day, we heard about a subway. When one of the tracks broke, guess what? How well does the subway run or any train when you don't have tracks to ride on? It just screeches to a halt. It goes sideways. It goes zigzag. You have a major derailment, a major disaster. But if you keep that train on those tracks and limit how it operates to the life on tracks, then guess what? That provides its greatest freedom of movement and fulfilling its purpose in the best way possible when it stays on those parallel tracks. In the same way, many of us, I think, are not living well, our lives are not very self-controlled because we don't want to give up what we really want. Right? I mean, what we really want is, I want that chocolate candy with the almonds in it. That's what I'm eating now that I'm still trying to give up. I've, I've lost a few pounds, but that's the thing I'm still turning to, realizing I don't have to have that. But what we really want is what I really want, and that's why I'm pursuing things, and that's why my lack of self-control is a problem, right? And so what we really want, we really want, and we want things or we want something more than God. And therefore, what we're called to do in the gospel, is to learn that we are dissatisfied perhaps with something that we have and we think, oh, I need something else. This is not enough. I've got to have more. And part of the deepest longings of our hearts need to be addressed with what are you really wanting more than God, more than Christ, more than the treasures of the gospel. And that will reveal all sorts of insights as to what's driving out-of-control behavior where oftentimes we see our need for self-control. One more quick insight, and then I need to move on here. I'm just scratching the surface. I really haven't gotten into many issues, but one more insight I would like to make in terms of how the gospel impacts our ability and our motivation developed by the Holy Spirit. It comes from a strengthened will. A strengthened will. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and notice how Paul 
comments on this. If we read this earlier in our scripture reading. 1 Corinthians 9. Paul used an illustration talking about some athletes. And he talked about the fact that uh, athletes who intend to run, let's say, a marathon race, well, they don't just show up one day and say, you know, I think I'm going to sign up for this marathon race. I'm going to ride, run 26 point whatever miles. Uh, just count on me. I haven't trained a bit, but just gonna, I'm just going to try it. I don't think so. If you're a half-decently committed runner, you're going to spend months and months training. Physical training and mental training. And look what Paul says. Everyone who competes, verse 27, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. It is self-control in the, in the preparation process of, of, of preparing for it. It is self-control during the race itself. People don't just sit around and play video games for hours and hours preparing for a marathon race. They don't sit there and eat boxes of Twinkies, right? And you don't sit there and eat Pop-Tarts, box after box, preparing for a marathon race. You eat things that you think are healthy and appropriate that give you energy and that kind of thing. And, and it involves serious running, serious stretching, and serious uh, uh, extending the running every day. And the same, I think, is true for believers. That sometimes we think that magically the Spirit of God is going to say, okay, one thing you struggle with in this area of self-control, tomorrow you'll just somehow, it'll just stop. And I just want to encourage you to think. Think of self-control and the strengthening of our will is a process by which you must strengthen that muscle of response. It has to be trained. It has to, take, it has to be something that's developed over time. And therefore, you utilize the means of grace, the disciplines of grace. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about reading your scriptures, reading the Bible, reading it thoughtfully, carefully, really asking yourself, how does this apply to my life? Praying over the scriptures, praying and talking to God about your struggles, acknowledging your need for God, acknowledging your, that you want to be in, in communion with God throughout the day. And the more we become aware of living in fellowship with other believers and having them pray for us and, pray, and we pray for them, we find that we'll gain greater discernment over time. We gain, we gain greater convictions. We gain greater insight about our struggles and our weaknesses. And we know we need to avoid certain things so we don't even go there. 1 Timothy 4.7 is a very helpful text for us to ponder. And I don't have time to fully unpack that, so I'm just going to drop this as a, a, a future homework assignment for you, if you'd like. 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That means you have to apply to yourself the, 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 stop, the, the ceasing of doing things that are not helpful, and you need to replace those over time with doing things that are appropriate and are helpful. And the person that has a very helpful booklet on this is Jay Adams. It's called Godliness Through Discipline. I ordered a, a number of these, and guess what? They must have sent it on the Pony Express. I don't know where it is. It, did, it didn't make it. It'll be here next week. And so I'll try to be sure that they're on the, the uh, book ministry table. He unpacks the idea of how do I see myself taking steps to what? Develop new habits. You say, I, you know, you don't realize how many habits you have. How many of you think very seriously and carefully about all the intricacies of driving a car now that you're an experienced driver? We don't even, we don't even think. Too many of us are eating and 
and I won't say what else, texting or no, uh, talking to people in the car and rearranging things, whatever. And we're doing 16 things. Not even thinking about all of the things that when you first started driving were what? Oh my goodness, I got to put the blinker on. I got to stop this. I got to look over here. I got to check this. You're looking for 16 things. Why? Because it's not habitual yet. But once you've developed the skills, it becomes like second nature. And so I think this is a whole nother area. The more we become aware of our need for prayer, the more we become aware of a need for scriptures every day, the more we become aware of taking gradual steps to remove things from our lives that we need to stop doing and then add something in its place that's appropriate, we begin to find ourselves getting far more change and discipline and self-control in some of those areas that can be a real, real struggle. And what I'm trying to say here is this. Sustained daily effort is required even though we're desperately in need of the Holy Spirit. You catch me on that? Sustained daily effort is required in in the sense of growing in self-control under the authority and help and encouragement and power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I find myself saying what? Lord, rebuild my walls. Some of us have certain areas of our lives that the wall has been broken down for years. We've stopped even trying to rebuild the wall. And I'm praying that the gospel, the gospel that motivates us to respond in love to God because of all he's done for us out of love will motivate us to say, Lord Jesus, I want to see you through the power of the Holy Spirit rebuilding the walls of my heart and life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who understands our struggles. Thank you, Lord, that you understand also the issues of our hearts, which is so important for us to wrestle with. Lord, we're not just into techniques here. We can have all kinds of children that we train as parents who will obey us in first-time obedience. Yet the whole time they're doing it, they hate it. And they're just longing for that day if they can get out and live on their own. So, Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to get to the point where our hearts are impacted by the gospel. And that we begin to live out of of our hearts that are thankful to you, that are humble before you, that are grateful because of the grace that we received in Christ. And I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who has not come to Christ and who has not truly repented their sin, that they may have a new heart given to them even today. Father, I pray that for the rest of us that we will surrender to you afresh and anew. Some of us have desires, Lord, that we've been giving into for years that we realize is idolatry. And Lord, we want to surrender to you today afresh and anew. I pray, Father, that the gospel that shows us such a wonderful Savior of grace will lead us to truly surrender all to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.